Welcome to Breaking Through. I'm Madeline Bell, President and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Today's episode is part of my special podcast series, Where We Are Now. This series highlights the CHOP doctors and researchers who are working day and night to help bring an end to the COVID-19 pandemic. They are working on the front lines and behind the scenes to better understand COVID-19 and to make the breakthroughs the world needs right now. They are developing innovative diagnostic tests and pursuing new treatments, and they are providing support and resources for communities and families, offering hope and help in this incredibly challenging time. My guest today is Dr. Edward Barons. Dr. Barons is Chief of CHOP's Division of Rheumatology and Director of our Immune Dysregulation Program. He and his team are studying a rare condition called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MIS-C. MIS-C is linked to COVID-19 infections in children, and I know that many parents have questions about it. Dr. Barons is going to share what he and his team have learned about MIS-C with you today. Dr. Barons, since we're recording this interview remotely, let's begin by describing where we are right now. I'm on the 20th floor of the Roberts Center for Pediatric Research in my office. Where are you sitting? I'm in exam room 114 on the third floor of the Burger Building. Okay. Dr. Barons, when the medical community first became aware of the condition we now know as MIS-C, what led doctors to link this illness to COVID-19? It's a complicated question because, of course, we're talking about the discovery of a new syndrome. What basically occurred is in a couple of centers in Europe, mostly in Italy, and then shortly thereafter in the United Kingdom, pediatricians were seeing a surge in cases of what they thought was an inflammatory disease called Kawasaki syndrome or Kawasaki's disease. Kawasaki's disease is an inflammatory disease of the vessels of the heart, and it can be associated with fevers and rashes. And it's a relatively common diagnosis of childhood that every pediatrician is aware of and is always looking out for. And we see cases of Kawasaki's disease throughout the year. But what these physicians in Italy and the UK noticed is that there was this unexplained surge in the number of kids that they were seeing that they thought had this Kawasaki's disease. At the same time, both of these countries were going through a surge in COVID-19 infections, both in adults you know, and in children in, in their own countries. And so it was natural for the physicians in those countries to think, could these things be connected? Maybe a couple weeks after both Italy and the UK put their reports out on this, New York City began to see the same phenomenon. And of course, the US was a little bit delayed in its timing of infections compared to Europe. So that sort of made sense in terms of the timing. And I think at that point in time, you know, having three different countries, different spots across the world, the timing kind of made sense. The medical community made this connection that the surge in kids that looked like they were having this inflammation in their skin and in their eyes and, and around their hearts was probably connected to COVID-19 infections. So this discovery has really changed how we think about COVID-19 in children. Why is that the case? The initial narrative, and I think that's still the correct narrative, is that the vast majority of children that get infected with the virus really do quite well. They're either asymptomatic or they have minimal symptoms, let's say. And I think that that still remains the case, that the vast majority of children, the vast, vast majority of children that get infected really do not display a lot of symptoms. In some sense, that's a problem because they're still carriers and transmitters of the virus, so they can be 
walking around and spreading it to other people, including higher risk populations that do get symptoms. But the good news is that the vast majority of children really do quite well uh, with the infection. The twist to that story, of course, is that there is now this sort of exception to that rule, which is that there is a rare, small subset of children that after they get infected, go on to develop this Miss-C syndrome, which does then cause problems for them. Fortunately, it's actually quite treatable, and I still think that most children are doing really quite well even after they're Miss-C, but they do get sick and do need medical care. So I think that that sort of refined the way that we thought about this. Initially, I think we were all very relieved and comforted that children were a very low-risk population. And now I guess the nuance to that message is that's still true, but we need to be watching out for this rare complication of Miss-C in a small subset of children that do get infected. So you said we should be watching out for this complication. I'm sure this makes parents very worried. For the parents in our audience, what should they specifically be looking for? I want to preface this statement with just sort of reiterating the point that, once again, the vast majority of children that get infected will have absolutely no problem. So I think my first message to that point is I don't want people staying up at night worrying about, oh my gosh, is my child going to get Miss C? I don't want people whose children have been exposed having undue anxiety over that. Because still, even with the fact that this exists, even with the fact that we're dealing with the syndrome, the very large odds are that even if your child was exposed to the virus, and even if your child was infected with the virus, they're not going to get Miss C. It is a rare complication, a very rare complication of infection. Having said that, it is a real thing. In many ways, there's not a lot to watch out for because when the Miss C syndrome comes on, it often comes on very quickly. What children develop is they develop fever, they develop a skin rash, and the skin rash can be almost anything. It's a red rash that can be almost anywhere on the body and can take many different shapes and forms. They can develop swelling of their hands and feet. They develop red eyes. And then I think the things that make it somewhat unique are that these children often develop a very severe abdominal pain, often accompanied by diarrhea and vomiting. And then the thing that basically brings them to medical attention is that they get very dehydrated very quickly, in part because of the way that it affects the gastrointestinal system with the diarrhea, and in part because the other thing, as I mentioned, that the Miss C can attack is the heart, and the heart stops pumping quite as well as it should. And so children may become lethargic, they may become dizzy, they might have a low blood pressure, but you'll know it. Your child will be sick and displaying those types of symptoms that would make you bring your child to the emergency room even before COVID-19 existed. What are some of the questions you're trying to answer in your research right now? So I think there are two related and important questions that the medical community has to understand about this. I think the first is, who are the children that are actually getting Miss C? So as I've said, it's a rare complication. The majority of children that get infected and exposed to COVID-19 don't develop Miss C. So it's some small subset of children that develop this complication. And so then that makes you want to ask, what is special about those children? What risk factors did they have that made them get it that the other child did not? That's important so that we can understand the disease and have more knowledge about what the disease is. But I think it's secondarily important because if we understood who that subgroup was, then I think we'll have the ability to be much more prescriptive to your previous question, which is what should I look out for? 
Because if we know who the at-risk subgroup is, then I can tell parents of uh, infected children, ah, your child is in the group that's not going to get it, you don't have to worry, versus your child is in the at-risk group, here are the real things you need to look out for. So I think that's one important question, is why do some children get it and other children don't? And then I think the other question that we're actively trying to understand is, what is it that makes the immune system react in a way to cause MIS-C in the first place? And the reason why that question is important is that we have a number of ways now using medicines to adjust the immune system so that when the immune system gets out of balance, we can bring it back into balance. But in order to do that most effectively, I've got to know what part of the immune system is out of balance. And so that's one of the major questions of our research group is trying to figure out what parts of the immune system are behaving badly in the children that have MIS-C that's causing all this inflammation. One of the initial things that I think our data really speak to that was postulated by other groups, but I think you know we can really more concretely show is that MIS-C is what we call a post-infectious process. So what that means is, is that it's not a problem of the virus actually being actively replicating in the body, of being actively infected. What we think is actually happening is that children get infected with the virus that causes COVID-19, their body fights it off, they get rid of the virus, they actually clear the virus, they make an antibody immune response against the virus, all the things that we would want an immune system to do to effectively clear and get rid of a coronavirus infection. These children seem to be doing all of that completely normally. And then three to four weeks later, after that infection, now they're coming down with the MIS-C. So there's something that the immune system is doing weeks later, after the virus is cleared, where it's sort of overreacting, it's becoming hyperactive in a way that it's now doing damage to the body instead of protecting the body. And I think understanding the components of the immune system that's doing that and the nature of how that happens is going to ultimately let us select the kinds of medicines that are going to allow us to restore the immune system back to balance in a way that's going to be most effective. Well, that's a really helpful explanation, and I'm glad you and your team are working to answer those questions. Dr. Barnes, why are we at CHOP so well positioned to make this breakthrough happen? I think it takes a lot to be able to understand and parse out complex diseases let alone complex diseases that are brand new and have only been around for two months. And I think one of the things that makes CHOP particularly special is both the breadth and the depth of the specialty that we have. So you can find a cardiologist who's not just a cardiologist, but a cardiologist that understands the immune system. And an infectious disease doctor who's not just an infectious disease doctor, but is expert in viruses. And not just viruses, but coronaviruses. And so in each discipline, you've got a world-class expert sitting right there who's ready to jump in and ask the right questions and figure out how to ask the right questions so that when a challenge arises, the team is there. And because the culture at CHOP really is one where we all work together as a team, putting together that team is easy. So you've got the experts, you've got the right culture to put the team together. And then it's just a matter of having the will to take on the problem. And I think that that embodies the ethos of CHOP and the reason why we come to work every day. And I think that that's what empowers us to make such a big impact for these kinds of situations. Dr. Barons, we're 
all looking for some bright spots during this difficult and uncertain time. What gives you hope right now? You know, I think a lot of things. The first is, as I've said, as bad as all of this is, I still take a lot of solace in the incontrovertible fact that most children, even if they get infected, do quite well. So I think that that's reassuring. It doesn't make the pandemic any less serious and certainly doesn't make it any less serious for the adults that are at risk. But I have hope that children seem to be resilient. I also have hope that even in the patients that we've treated so far, even with all these questions that we talked about that we still don't have the answer to, we've been able to find treatments that actually do work for children with Miss C. And basically all of the children that we've treated here of CHOP have recovered and gotten out of the hospital and we're seeing them in follow-up and they're doing well. And so I think that that's another piece of good news that I take solace in. Finally, I think as I talk to my neighbors, you know, I'm on the task force for my child's school district for thinking about reopening and so in working with my own local community and just sort of seeing the response that many Americans are taking, I think we are getting to the point where we can band together to do the right things to protect ourselves and our communities from this virus with each of us pitching in and doing the right thing to protect our communities with the medical and scientific community actively working night and day to find the answers to these questions that we've talked about. I really think we're going to get there and we're going to get to a solution. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen tomorrow. But I think that we are going to be able to solve this problem if we continue to work together as a team and take it seriously and do the right things. I always close by asking my guests about their personal breakthroughs. Dr. Behrens, could you tell me about your biggest breakthrough moment? I think that the biggest breakthrough that I would say that I've had, the thing that's been sort of most dramatic for me was the recent development of our immune dysregulation team here at CHOP. It's been kind of a dream of mine for probably since I've been a medical student, really. I mean, ever since I've really started in this profession to have this expert crack team that was going to solve all these medical mysteries and we're going to figure out the immune system and help children get better from these complex immune diseases that no one can figure out. And little by little over the years, I've gotten closer to that dream. But really two years ago when CHOP helped me by putting together this team with me and giving us the resources to see that dream to fruition, it's just been an unbelievably amazing experience for me professionally and personally to be able to see these children and make a difference for them and help them in ways that wasn't even able to dream of even five years ago. So I would say that's been my biggest breakthrough moment was getting this immune dysregulation team together so that we were in the right position to be able to help when COVID-19 hit and Miss C hit and no one knew what to do, but we had a team that was ready to go and could get working on it. So I just think that that's been an incredible experience for me that I don't know that I have the right words to do it justice, but that's probably been my biggest breakthrough. Well, I'm glad that we at CHOP have had the privilege to make your dream a reality. That's all the time we have for today. And Dr. Edward Behrens, thank you so much for joining me. To learn more about how you can be part of tomorrow's breakthroughs at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, please visit chop.edu giving. At CHOP, we make breakthroughs every day. I'm Madeline Bell. Thank you for listening.